I'm hoping that as we consider this paragraph, that this is always the goal to some extent, but this is one of those paragraphs that I trust will deepen and broaden our conception of God. I've been impressed this week, study, but just in, in a broader sense of our continuous uh, need to be growing in our conception of God. It's very easy for us to say, well, I'm a Calvinist now, so my view of God is, is acceptable now, and so let's move on to other things. And we, we need to always be reminded, and I read, uh, quoted from Edwards this morning, I read some things from, from Edwards this week, he always has a, a way of amplifying your view of God. We began Ruth. If you can get a hold of his sermon on that first section of Ruth, uh, where she says, where you go, I'll go, your God will be my God, uh, it's a, a really good sermon as well. Because it, it gives a big view of God, much bigger than simply God chooses who will be saved. That's a part of it. He's much bigger than even that. It's, we need to grow in our understanding of God. So let me open with prayer and then we'll, we'll dig into this paragraph. Father, we are at Your mercy to have any revelation of who You are. And though You have been very gracious in revealing to us what we do know, Lord, everything that we have, we've, we've learned from You. We don't have anything that we've not received from Your hand. We desire for more. We pray that You would work in us to destroy that in us which often meets head on with bigger views of Yourself and, and wars within us. Lord, I pray that the revelation of God would find a smooth pathway into our souls, that we would not wrestle or, or argue with who You are, but we would bow ourselves in Your presence and rejoice that You are our God and we are Your people. Help us to understand the just the very, the vastness of that, that thought. That You are our God, that we have a God. That, that the living God has chosen a people and would give that people His name and call them by His own name and set them apart and, and allow Himself to be designated as the God of that people. What a, what a privilege we have. Thank You for that. Lord, please speak to us from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as a reminder, we're discussing the Gospel and the extent of the grace of that Gospel. That is, specifically, specifically the communication and distribution of the Gospel. And since we were out of the confession last week, I'll briefly... Recap, paragraph 1, we looked at the promise of the gospel and we saw that our God is a gospel-preaching God. 
The promise of the Christ that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 contained in it the substance of the very same gospel that we believe today and the proclamation of that promise from that point until the coming of Christ was effectual just like the preaching of the gospel, the full gospel is today for the conversion and the salvation of sinners. There's always only ever been one way of salvation, one Savior, one Gospel. God has always used the same means, beginning with the first two people, the preaching of the Gospel. And the preaching of that Gospel promise was effectual in the days of Adam and Enoch and Abram and Noah and moving on to the fullness of the revelation of Christ to the Apostle Paul and Peter and John all the way down to our own day, the proclamation of that message has always been effectual for the same means. The calling out of the elect, the, the, the vehicle through which the Spirit comes to effectually call them from death to life, and also the sanctification of the saints as we, we, I trust, long and delight to hear the gospel every week. Even those of us who are converted, we, we say, I'm going to church and I'm hoping that somebody is going to proclaim something of that gospel. I want to hear it again. I trust you want to hear it again too. That's, that's always been the pattern for the people of God and that's because that was God's pattern. It began with God. That's what He did. Uh, and and I've, I've tried and will continue to try to in no way disparage the written inscripturated revelation that we have of God. But it is very interesting that for Adam and Eve, God did not give them a book in that moment. He proclaimed to them a promise. And they were to hold on to that promise by faith. And, and so that's the way God has, has always worked with His people. It's a a revelation of God's condescension and His mercy to us, that He would give us preachers, men like us, touched with our infirmities, just like we are, but who would come to us and convey the gospel to us. In the second paragraph, we looked at specifically the revelation of the gospel, and we saw the distinction between general revelation and special revelation as it regards the disclosure of the gospel as a means of grace. And we saw that though God has revealed enough in general revelation to leave men without excuse, He has not revealed enough in general revelation to make Christ known to men. That requires special revelation. General revelation does not give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary for salvation. And so those of the human race who never receive the special revelation of God through the proclamation of the gospel cannot be expected to discover Christ or come to a saving faith and repentance. God has ordained a particular means and those who go without that means we expect will go without salvation. What does that do? That makes the preaching of the gospel an absolute necessity. Absolute necessity. There is no Christianity without the proclamation of the gospel. This is the means, again, that God uses. We have His example. And the truth of the matter is that those who are bereft of that means will not be saved. And so now we come to the third paragraph and the the overarching truth is this, that true preaching 
is always administered under or according to the sovereign prerogative of God. The way of salvation, we remember, is God's idea. The means of salvation were God's idea. The manner of the delivery of salvation to men is God's idea. It's infinite wisdom, which has not only contrived the scheme of man's redemption in Christ, but which has ordained the method by which this redemption would find out the elect among the nations and make an application of that redemption. Infinite wisdom. The world does not understand this method. We, in our natural condition, and our natural thinking, when we think with the wisdom of the world, we're always going to come up with something other than stand a man somewhere with a Bible and have him preach. We'll always come up with something different. The problem is, that's the means God has ordained. Now, now what do we know about God's plan for the saving of sinners? What have we seen in the confession already? We'll turn back to chapter 3 of the confession. I want to, as much as I can, show you how the confession interacts with itself. But also, I think you're going to see that what we're learning here in this paragraph, we've really already seen. Chapter 3 deals with God's decree. And I won't read the whole thing, but paragraph 1 says that God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things. Now I'll stop right there. All things. The eternal decree of God encompasses all things. Nothing happens outside of that eternal decree. Not one thing. No thing. And that paragraph goes on to say, in which, in in that truth, appears His wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. God will accomplish His decree, which decree encompasses Everything. He will do it. His wisdom is seen when we think, how can God... And just begin to list various events that take place on the world or on on planet earth at one time. In this nation and this nation and this nation and this nation, as we are sleeping, men on the other type of the, on the other side of the globe are preaching the gospel. While they're sleeping, men over here are preaching the gospel. As the sun comes up upon on this side of the nation, things are happening. While the other men on the other side of the nation are still bringing their sleep to a close, all of these things are happening, and this is God in infinite wisdom disposing. He's ordering it all. And He will accomplish His decree. Now look at paragraph 3 of that chapter. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. God has decreed in eternity that some men will have eternal life through His Son. Paragraph 6 of that chapter. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so He hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of His will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, 
being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by His Spirit working in due season. Who decides what is the due season? God does. All of the means required for bringing all of the elect unto salvation are according to God's eternal decree, and He will bring it to pass. Now we add to that the truth that we've seen in in chapter 20. That it's through special revelation, and specifically through the preaching of the gospel that men are saved, that we have to conclude that the circumstances leading to and revolving around the preaching of the gospel in any particular place where the elect are saved are also carried out according to the eternal decree of God. That's what this third paragraph teaches us essentially. Now I've broken it up into two main headings. The first one is the sovereignty of God in gospel revelation. And we see first a truth stated positively. The revelation of the gospel unto sinners made in diverse times and by sundry parts with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. This is the positive assertion regarding God's absolute sovereignty over the revealing of the gospel to men. We see that phrase, the revelation of the gospel unto sinners, that points us back to phrases we've already seen, like the promise of Christ, the promise of Christ and salvation by Him, the revelation of Him by the promise or gospel. So we're leaving behind any thought of general revelation. We're honing in on special revelation. General revelation is insufficient. Special revelation is that which is given for men to come to Christ. That's what we're thinking about here. The revelation of the gospel. That revelation being made in diverse times and by sundry parts. Diverse times would be beginning with Adam all down to the ages throughout history. Anytime, any place the gospel is made known. And in sundry parts, we know that the details, the fullness of the gospel were revealed progressively throughout human history until Christ came. Divers times, sundry parts. The revelation of the gospel with those qualifiers is basically summarizing all of the special revelation of God at all times and in every way in which all of the details were revealed. All of that with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein. Now I take this to be a reference to whatever might have come along with these various and progressive revelations of the gospel. For example, looking back to the old covenant nation of Israel, we know that though the ceremonies given to Israel were not in themselves salvific, they did put before the eyes of those people, the sincere saints in that day, the manner of their salvation, as well as held out promises to them which typified their spiritual salvation. They didn't save them, but the believing Israelite was required to obey these precepts of the law given by God. They were required to keep these ceremonies, not for justification, but just like we are in obedience to the law of God. This is my God. I will obey what He says. And they, they, they did these things as an act of worship 
from the heart of faith, just like we do. We, we, we conform ourselves to the law of God, not for justification, but as an act of worship. Those in that day lived out their faith, just like we do through obedience. And as they obeyed, especially in those ceremonies, the precepts, and especially as they looked forward to the promises that God gave that dealt with the land temporally, but looked forward to a, another city, an eternal city, as they did that, they had their salvation and their redemption placarded before their eyes all the time. And they were not burdened by that. They enjoyed it. Just like when we come together and we say, I hope somebody preaches the gospel today. They would think, I'm going. I'm going to take my lamb or my goat or whatever. I go to the tabernacle. It's, it's not going to be a pretty scene. It's not going to be a fun thing. But they could look at that and see in that typified the salvation that they had placed their faith in. And it was a blessing to them. All those types of things. Promises and precepts that came along with God's special revelation. At the present time, again, we have the moral law of God, which is our rule of life. Commands that we have like gathering in churches and worshiping. The Bible says, essentially, if you're a Christian, you're going to get together with other Christians, you're going to worship, you're going to go through these, these various ordinances of worship. Those things come along with the revelation that God has given. All of that together, all of the special revelation that God has given to men, if we wanted to separate it, we could say the very specific details of, of the gospel and salvation, along with the implications of that gospel. As to the nations and persons to whom it is granted, that would be whatever people, whatever individual, whatever nation to whom that revelation might come. All of that together, the confession says, is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. In other words, the disclosure of those things or the any revelation that goes beyond general revelation given to all men is dispensed only according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. It goes forth under His supervision. It goes forth as He pleases. Or to put it maybe more simply, if the gospel ever came to any nation or person, it's because Almighty God determined that that nation and that person would receive the gospel, and for no other reason than that. Now we can turn to the Scriptures. Look at uh, Psalm 147 is the first reference. These truths ought to humble us, not produce pride or arrogance. Uh, I don't think I should need to say that, but it is a tendency to hear these things and begin to Take them for granted at the very least. Psalm 147, the confession references verse 20, but I'll begin at verse 19. He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Now, the psalmist is exhorting, if you read through the whole psalm, the psalmist is exhorting the people to praise. He's calling them to consider the goodness and the power of God. And he describes the works of God over 
over the, the creation, what we might consider general revelation. Verse 8, He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, makes grass grow on the hills. He does these things. But then He describes the specific work that God has done for Israel. In verse 19, He states it positively. He declares His Word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. But then in verse 20, He declares it negatively. He has not dealt thus. He didn't didn't act this way to any other nation. You read the several places in the Old Testament where God says, you know, you were the least. You were a tiny nation. What do we know? That the earth was, as far as we can tell, populated by many great nations. More people not in Israel than were in Israel. And yet God didn't give those nations His Word. Less people with His revelation than there were without His revelation. Was God ignorant to this? Did he, is it, was it that He did not know that they were there? Of course not. God did not declare His Word to these other nations. He didn't reveal Himself to other nations and peoples as He had done for Israel. Now we know He revealed His power in Egypt. We, we can read in the Scriptures of other kings who would make mention of the God of Israel and they would even, it seems, take the name of Yahweh on their lips. They knew His name. They knew this is the God of these people. They knew of Him. They did not know Him the way Israel knew Him. They didn't have the revelation that Israel had. Why not, God? Why not? The, the answer we have is because it was not His pleasure to do so. God is sovereign, God is in control, and God decides who receives His Word and His Gospel. The next reference is a New Testament reference. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. The reference is verse 7, but I'll read verses 6 through 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they passed by Mycenae. They went down to Troas. Now this is during Paul's second missionary journey, and we have here two places. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, did not allow them. The Holy Spirit forbade Paul to preach in Asia. The Holy Spirit did not allow Paul to go to Bithynia. Now get this in your mind. This is the the picture of the God with whom we have to do. Now we can only assume, because we know of Paul's missionary zeal, his passion to proclaim the gospel, the fact that these places are mentioned in the journey, that more than likely he desired or at least was inclined to go to these places. And yet in both cases, God doesn't allow it. I will not allow you to go there. Do not go there. God doesn't allow it. Now, does this mean that the gospel never came to these places? No, we know that there were eventually churches in Asia. It didn't come this time 
in this way, by these means. The gospel revelation in these places was under the sovereign eye and good pleasure of God. Again, it is the gospel is God's gospel, and He is the one who rules over its dispensation. It's His plan, His purpose, His design. He's the one who sees to it that His Word goes forth. That's the, the positive statement. Next we see it, the, the negative side of that in the confession. And the idea here is that the dispensation of the gospel has never been nor ever will be rooted in anything that men have done. God oversees the dispensation of the gospel according to His eternal decree and His good pleasure, and therefore it is not based on anything that any person or nation has done. The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in divers times by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted. That's our subject. And then I'll skip a few words to the word not. Not being, here's the negative, we could say it is not annexed, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can do so. The phrase not being annexed means not connected to or associated with in any way. Not being annexed by virtue of any promise, in no way connected or associated with some promise of God to the due improvement of men's natural abilities by virtue of common light received without it. In other words, to, this is, a, I think, a difficult sentence to read. God has never made a promise to the effect that if men will make an appropriate use of common light or general revelation that they've received that He would then respond to that by giving them special revelation. And uh, Sam Waldron in his commentary points to the story of the Philippian jailer. Um, I believe it was, no, it was the centurion who it said that he was offering alms before God and then the gospel comes to, the, to him and people say, see right there is a man who was doing good and so then God responded by bringing gospel light. That's not, not the case. God has never said, I'm going to give general revelation to everybody. And if, if some people take that and use it rightly, and then they seek me, then I'll make sure that my gospel gets to them. We have no such promise in Scripture. And the fact of the matter is, as our confession words it, which none ever did make or can do so. In other words, no person, no individual, no nation has ever made a due improvement of their natural abilities based on general revelation. They, they can't take their natural abilities, lay them beside the general revelation of God, and somehow earn from God the special revelation of the gospel. He's never made a promise like that. The, the point here is that men are actually so corrupt in their nature that even though they do retain their, their rational faculties and God has given them general revelation or common light, fallen men do not, nor can they put those things to work in such a way as to bring themselves to a greater revelation of God or oblige God to give them more revelation. General revelation only goes so far. 
Man's natural ability only goes so far. Neither of them separately or when you put them together are sufficient to then obligate God to say, well, I guess I'll give you the full picture now since you've done well with what you had. Men don't do that. And that's why the confession here takes us to Romans chapter 1. So you can turn there. Romans chapter 1 lays this out. Men cannot do this because they will not do this. You know the, the context here. Paul's setting up the horrible condition in which men are by nature so that the light of the gospel will be shown more glorious. He does this by setting forth what God has done to reveal Himself to men and then how those men responded to that revelation. So in this chapter, we're dealing with human beings who have general revelation from God. They retain their rational faculties. And the question that we're going to ask is, what do they do with that? Do they improve it? Do they they make a use of it to their benefit? The answer is no. Beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God has so revealed Himself in the things that have been made that all men are without excuse. They know that there is a God of eternal power and divine nature. It's plain to them. But the wrath of God is revealed against them. Why? Because in their righteousness, they they push that truth down. They suppress it. How do they do that? Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Even though they had revelation, they had natural abilities, they used them for evil. They used what God had given to dishonor God. They did not improve upon it, and that doesn't mean make it better, but they didn't take it and use it to their advantage. They used it against God. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They continued in their rebellion. You notice in this passage, you you consistently have God revealing, man uses that in rebellion, therefore God brings judgment. And they go deeper, and therefore God brings deeper 
further judgment. That's how, it, that's how this, this scheme works out. 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Again, they know God's righteous decree. They know God's justice. And they rebel against it. Men know. And that's why he says in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Every time you look at somebody and you question or you, you condemn in your heart some act of theirs, you're showing that you know what they're doing is wrong. You're showing that you understand there is a moral standard and God brings judgment against that moral standard. He will punish sin. Our own inner judgment reveals that we do have a moral compass, and all men are this way. Look at our world. Everybody's making judgments. Everybody, everybody knows what is right and what is wrong. Is it, is it wrong to steal an election? Is, is, is it wrong? Our, our nation seems to think that it's wrong. They have a moral compass. They know that theft is wrong. They don't hold that across the board. They don't mind stealing at other times, taking money and and these sort of things, they know. And I was thinking this week of the irony that you listen to very many, I wouldn't say very many because I don't listen to very many, but you listen to political pundits and commentators and they're saying things and you're thinking, yes, yes, you are literally describing the Christian worldview as the, as the, the answer to the problem that you see. And yet they will not honor God. That's called taking the name of the Lord in vain. And they will answer for that. They've got all of the answers, but they refuse to say, this is from God. That's a problem. They know, but they will not honor God. They want to say, well, we, these are good ideas, or we came up with this, or the founding fathers this or that. We either give honor to God, or we discredit God and, and take His His things and slap our name on it. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Romans 2.14 says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They know by nature what God requires. So you see, men have been given everything from God to reveal to them their need. Everything. Everything. And yet they still refuse to acknowledge God. No one has an excuse. They would choose rather to turn their attention to created things. They do not improve their natural abilities or common light. They do the very opposite. They use everything that God has given them against Him. They take it, weaponize it, and turn it against Him in rebellion. Why? Because they are haters of God, enemies of God. Romans 3, 10 and 11, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
God created men, gave them allotted periods and places that they might seek Him. No one seeks. No one. They do not use the revelation of God to seek Him. They should, but they don't. Why, why do they not? Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God because in their rebellion they refuse to do so. They suppress the truth. They cannot improve their natural abilities in common light because they will not. And therefore God has made no promise to act according to men based on what they cannot and will not morally do. Because they can't do it. That's the positive and the negative. The gospel is dispensed according to God's decree and good pleasure. The gospel is not dispensed according to any promise that if somebody responds rightly to this or that, then He'll give them the rest of the revelation. So that's the sovereignty of God in gospel revelation. The second heading, which is much shorter, is the sovereignty of God in gospel proclamation. Back to our confession. And therefore, in all ages, the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. In all ages, that would be again at at any time and in any place. The preaching of the gospel, again, which is the ordained means of conveying both the promise and the gospel fullness itself, that is the means that God has ordained to bring in the elect, all ages, all places, the preaching of the gospel has been granted either in broad measure, that would be the extent, broad measure, or straightening, that means making it tight, narrowing, or the limitation of its preaching. And this has been done in great variety. History proves this. The effectual preaching of the gospel has varied in time and place at such a rate that there is literally no way to calculate or place a grid of logic over it. The preaching of the gospel has been so varied. Extensive here and straightened here. And then extensive here and straightened here. And then taken from here and given to there. It's been varied. And I'll say this at this point. In studies on revival and revivals, where you see a great outpouring of the Spirit of God through preaching, there are men who have sought to give out a prescription. Here's what you do. And you can achieve... Revival, But those who pay the most attention to true moves of God, you can find men like Ian Murray who, who, have, who have written biographies and things like that on various revivals. They trace these things out and they'll tell you. There is literally no way to describe or prescribe a formula that you can lay across all revivals and somehow explain the method in which God chooses to pour out His Spirit. There is none. The effectual preaching of the gospel is not something we can put into a formula or guarantee on any conditions. God is sovereign over the proclamation of the gospel or as the confession states it, this happens according to the counsel of the will of God. From the very beginning, God is the one who has been the blessed and only sovereign 
especially over the preaching of His gospel to His elect on His planet in His universe. The elect are known to God. The means of gathering the elect are foreordained by God. And therefore only God can know where and when and how the gospel needs to be distributed. God is absolutely sovereign over the matter entirely. Now what do we do with this knowledge? Deuteronomy 29, 29. What we don't know, we don't know. What we do know, we're supposed to act upon. We act upon what we know, not upon what we do know. There is a mystery of God's working that we don't know. We don't act upon that. We do what He says. What do we do? Here here are some of the options. Ignore God and go about our plans as we see fit. Here's what we think we ought to do. Here's where we think we ought to preach. Here's where we think we ought to do this or that. Ignore God and go about our plans. Option number two, ignore all of the plans and say, well, God's going to do what He's going to do. He's sovereign. Or thirdly, do what God has said to do. Trusting that in obeying Him, we will find ourselves in step with His plan for the salvation of His people. I would suggest number three is the correct answer. What do we do? We obey. We obey Him. So what are the, some of the things He's told us to do? First, pray. Matthew 9.38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. If you're not doing this, this is step one for gospel expansion and kingdom ministry in the world. Step one, pray that God would send out laborers. The Scriptures are clear we don't naturally know what we ought to pray for. Here, we have an express command from Jesus Himself. Pray this prayer. If you pray this prayer, you're praying a prayer that is in accordance with the will of God. Lord, send out laborers into Your harvest. Laborers into His harvest. God, it's Your harvest. Send out Your laborers. Secondly, submit to God's means. The Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ gave this commission to His disciples as representative of His church in all ages. He means for His church to be a disciple-making organism. We have to submit to that. We can, we can come up with our own plans all day long, and that's easy. I feel like doing this, and he feels like doing that. Let's just scatter. That's easy. You come together in a body with varying gifts and varying dispositions and places of various uh, levels of sanctification and growth and understanding, and you're trying to teach these and bring these along and pump the brakes on these, and you're all trying to work together as a disciple-making organism. That's hard work. That requires faith. You look at it and you think, God Almighty, there must be something easier than this. You've got to submit. It's God's means. God's harvest. God's salvation. Submit to God's means. And beneath that, thirdly, train and send men. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
God has instituted the local church and given men to the church for the purpose of training and preparing other men. You say, that sounds crazy. We don't have anybody here equipped to do that. Exactly. It sounds insane. We trust. We walk by faith. We pray for and encourage and acknowledge that it is a central tenet in the life of a local church to be preparing and training men to preach the gospel. God has ordained the church as a whole, as a body, for this purpose. Different members have different gifts. Different gifts are given for different purposes, but we all work together to the same end of making disciples. You might think, well, I'm not a preacher and I don't feel like I have any gifts. What's, what's my purpose here? How am I discipling? How many of you wives slash mothers realize that you are discipling and training a, a, a young lady who's about to be a wife this week? Are you thinking that way? Men, same for a man, a young man. He's going to be a husband this week. They're watching you to learn how to be a wife, how to be a husband. This is how disciples are made. If you don't think in those terms, you think, oh, we're just, we're just hanging out. We're just fellowshipping. No, you are training. It's an organism that works in varying gifts. Different people doing different things. And all of it works together for the proclamation of the gospel. I was thinking of of Ruth. Naomi. Out of this tragedy comes this, this woman. She says, I'm going with you. Okay, go with me. Generations down the line, Christ is born. When we think about how the gifts work in the church, we, don't, we can't simply think about this person you know, doing A, B, or C for this person. All of it is working together under the providence of God. You don't know that what, what you might say to help train a young mother might in four generations produce another George Whitfield. You don't know. That's why we work together. We walk by faith. Lord, we don't know what You're doing. We'd be crazy if we try to find out. You're sovereign. We obey. We do what He says. Inasmuch as we pray for laborers, give ourselves to the ministry of the church, encourage the ongoing training of men, we're joining in the ordinary means by which God has promised to gather in His elect. And to go back to the issue of revivals, I think one thing you can find is where revivals happen, it's when people are going about the ordinary means of grace. They're just having church. I mentioned Robert Machine this morning. He actually left. He went on a trip. A fill-in pastor came to preach and revival broke out. What do you want me to do while you're gone? I guess just preach. Revival takes place. The ordinary means, giving ourselves to the ordinary means and trusting, God will pour out His Spirit as He sees fit. It's our job to obey. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing together. Father, I trust that our understanding and our, our opinion, our view of You has, has increased. I pray that we would not lose it, that we would continue to seek, seek and to search and to, have our souls 
expanded merely to, to try to produce love and adoration and worship for a God of your magnitude. We cannot comprehend. We, we, our minds can't grasp the fullness of who you are. If we get just a glimpse of your mighty power and sovereignty, well, we would never doubt. Nothing could stop us. Lord, give us as a congregation a sight of the bigness of God. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from having low views of ourselves and our gifts. Help us to walk by faith. Things that might seem insignificant could very well be small pieces in a puzzle that that you're putting together to bring many souls to glory. Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us to be content with faithful obedience in simple and small things for the sake of your kingdom. We look forward to the day when we, we see things as they are and we're able to see the big picture. What a day that will be.